Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, how are you? Doing great, Eric. We've got a great show lined up for today. We're going to be uh, revisiting a topic we covered in a couple previous episodes. We're going to be talking about supplemental needs trusts, which are, which are also known as special needs trusts. And uh, we're going to talk about why family may decide to work with a corporate trustee. And today, with us today, we have Dan Armantrout, who is the Senior Vice President of Business Development at Capital First Trust. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Capital First Trust, they are an independent South Dakota chartered trust company that serves as a corporate trustee and trust administrator for trusts like we're going to describe today. So uh, with that, Dan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Jim. So Dan, just before we get started, just give us a little bit of your background because you've been in this industry uh, for quite some time, have a, a lot of expertise. So just tell us about your career path that, uh, that led you to Capital First Trust in the first place. Oh, where do I begin? Uh, the I guess uh, first first and foremost, uh, I have been in the trust business since 1985, so that uh, that severely dates me. Uh, <laughs> after law school, I found my way into the trust business in uh, 1985. Uh, remember 1987 and the October crash, and have worked uh, in trust administration, and finally migrated into uh, I guess my first love is. Uh, business development and helping people. Fantastic. So supplemental needs trusts are are a topic that I think a lot of folks are just totally unfamiliar with. And maybe dealing with a with a family member that either has some severe health issues that may have uh you know been born with or it may be something that came up with a with a car accident or some other kind of an accident later in life. So I guess just to kick us off here, what are some telling signs that a supplemental needs trust uh could be the right fit for somebody? Jim, the I guess the, the 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 initial the initial sign would be the prospect that a an individual uh, who's as you described may be an accident victim, uh, born with a congenital handicap or a limitation, unlikely to uh, be able to earn uh, what what someone would call a you know a, a living wage as they you say in the press today. Uh, the the t- sign would be the prospect that the individual would be re- re- would be receiving government benefits of some sort. Uh, the system works where you are not allowed to have more than two thousand dollars of assets if you are going to be uh, receiving means tested benefits. So that would be that would be the first sign. And there's different kinds of trusts in terms of who who sets them up. And uh, a lot of times when we're working with a client, we're trying to describe this. We we, we tend to put these into two buckets. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the difference between uh, a, a self-settled trust versus a third-party trust and and how that might affect the beneficiary's ability to, to qualify for things like Medicaid? Sure, sure. And your the, the trust fall into the two buckets. Uh, First-party trust would be, I guess the best way to understand would be the money is coming from another source. In most cases, that's an insurance settlement. 
due to an injury or a lawsuit. Third party trusts are the mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles, folks that voluntarily uh, fund the trust either through lifetime gifts or through inheritance. They fund the trust as individuals. That would be the third party trust. And the big distinction is a third party trust does not require payback of benefits. First party trust have a, and we'll probably get into this a little bit deeper, but hopefully not too deep. First party trusts require that the trust reimburse the government for benefits, Medicaid benefits that have been extended. Third party does not apply. And if the benefit, when the beneficiary passes, it can be the, there can be a provision in the trust that be directed and uh, to wherever, wherever the trust indicates the that uh, the money should be dispersed at the person's passing. One thing I want to just spend a little bit more time on is that you, you think about somebody who maybe at a young age, they they had a health condition and, you know, mom and dad are taking care of them right now and, and they're able to, you know, obviously pay the bills and, and raise their child. But I think the fear in the back of many parents' minds is that, you know, what happens decades after I'm gone, if my son or daughter is still, you know, still alive and well, and maybe our financial resources start to run low. You know, it can be hard to to live several decades just in retirement, but let alone you look at the the medical costs and things like that to pop up for somebody that's in a situation like this. Um, so I think a lot of folks underestimate the importance of trying to preserve the ability to qualify for things like like supplemental security income or or qualify for Medicaid. So how does the trust help them to qualify for these kinds of of government benefits? We are absolutely right. I mean, the the key here is planning early. We have conversations with folks around the country uh, practically every day. It's a very sobering and serious conversation where the beneficiary, the maybe the child may be living with mom and dad or the survivor of the two. Both are kind of aging parallel. You may have a, we've get situations all the time where you have 60, 70 year old parents with a child with autism or uh, injury and they're growing on parallel tracks. So child is getting to be 50 parents or six, 65, 70. And they're saying, who's going to take care of, who's going to step in and, and fill our role. That's a very common conversation. Fortunately, when we talk to a lot of these folks, they'll, they'll then tell us that they have life insurance in place that they're passing. They've isolated assets or identified certain assets or a percentage to fund the special needs trust that they're passing. So that's those are conversations that are had, but the key word there is you know plan, plan, plan. So with the with the cost of medical care uh, and the fact that you know the, the the government knows this this is expensive, right? And, and they they clearly want to provide for folks who uh, just may not be able to support themselves. Um, but what they don't want to do is uh, you know pay in forever for people who have the means. So so how does somebody plan? I mean, how does the how does the special needs trust? help somebody to kind of have their cake and eat it too, where they, they can still qualify for things like Medicaid, um, but still have ability to, to have other assets as well. How does the special needs trust you know, kind of kind of play with these different rules and regulations? Well, the special needs trust, all of this, all of this is a creature of the social security. So, I mean, a lot of folks are wondering where, who, who, who's the regulator, uh, I mean, all of the the statutory, the regulations, and they call POMs, POMs, uh, the rules of the the rules of the game are set by Social Security. They're administered locally, state by state. There are differences, but in the end, the the the, the goal is 
for for the beneficiary to have not to not have access to more than two thousand dollars of assets held in their own, but those assets are held in the trust, which is not counted against the means testing for benefits, yet it has the ability to pay for permissible items. And maybe that's a separate question we'll get to, which is what's permissible and what's not permissible. But it does it does allow the individual to have resources in a trust, whether it's a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand on up to provide for what a lot of folks call increased quality of life. Uh, those, those that can provide for entertainment, it can provide for modifications to home. All of those, all of those items can be, can be funded and dispersed and distributed to the beneficiary from the trust, which is allowed to have assets. They're exempt. And then later in life, when, when the beneficiary passes away, if mom and dad set the trust up or grandma and grandpa set the trust up and they funded it with their assets, uh, did the states come and, and claw that money back? Because I know a lot of folks have heard horror stories of, you know, when, when the state pays for things through Medicaid and they, they look at the beneficiary's assets and they said, hey, wait a minute, you, you have these other assets. They passed away. State wants to claw back that money. Does that work with a special needs trust or is there a way to protect that money? The the state can't. Well, the, we're talking 50 states, but the rule is the same because it's a, we're talking Social Security the, there is no clawback on a third party. The clawback occurs on a first party. So if you have a malpractice lawsuit or an act, if the if the money came from an outside source, what they call self-settled, as you referred to before, those monies are subject to clawback. Actually, it's a payback. There's a lien place for every dollar that is considered government benefit, and those those need to be paid back before there's a distribution to relatives or what we really looks in the trust it looks like the language in a will i leave my the remainder to my four cousins so first party clawback third party no clawback excellent so what are some of the common distributions that a family might be taking or a beneficiary might be receiving from a special needs trust interesting question there's actually actually is actually a list that the social security administration puts out and it and it lists all of those, all of those permissible items. So it's healthcare, it's it's healthcare items, shampoo, toothpaste. It, it's a it's a uh, very comprehensive list of permissible distributions. The flip side of that is what it cannot pay for, and that's where that's where the value of a corporate trustee comes in. The it cannot pay for essentially the in the simplest sense, food and shelter, which are two pretty important things for folks to uh, to have in life. The idea being the food and shelter would be covered from the benefits, social security, whether it's SSI, SSI payment. Financial planners will know that that payment is probably around $1,000 to $1,200 a month. That pays for food and shelter. Movies, transportation, vacations, TVs, computers would be paid as permissible distributions from a special needs trust. So what's amazing is that you know, we have all these programs that sound similar, and I think they confuse the heck out of people. You know, we think about the Social Security Administration overseeing these things, and it's like, okay, well, Social Security income is different than Supplemental Security income, and they both have the same same initials in the in those names. Yeah, right? exactly. 
So I just want to clarify for the audience that supplemental security income is intended to pay for food and shelter. And right. there's a very small personal allowance. Okay. That is a means-based program. And that's where these trusts come into play is that it's allowing you to supplement what these uh, what these benefits are, but not supplant them. So we, we don't want to have a situation where a trust is paying for things that supplemental security income, or what we nickname as SSI, is paying for because that might blow your eligibility for future benefits or reduce them substantially. So Dan, just a quick question. So what what about housing? Because this is something that comes up a lot where SSI is supposed to pay for you know food and shelter, but maybe the housing situation is not ideal for that price point for the beneficiary. So can a trust sort of um, you know do things like can it can it buy a house and own the own the house directly, or pay for a condo or pay for rent, or would that automatically disqualify somebody for benefits? Great question. And again, we've got to go down. We've got to first party versus third party rules that in both the, tr- the trustee can purchase a home that home would be held in trust, remembering that there might be a clawback on the first party. So it has to be held in trust. And on the third party, no clawback, the same, the trust, the trust can own the property and beyond owning property. Then we get into rental. You know, some people say that it's, it's it's not the ten it's not the three thousand rules that are you have to understand it's the uh, nine thousand exceptions. There is an exception. It's really not an exception. It's a ruling on rental. The and we run into this all the time as a corporate trustee. The rule is there's a one one third reduction in the SSI if rent is paid plus twenty dollars, and that that's how granular this stuff this this material can get. If you look at if you look at a situation into your pointer, you, folks need to be they need to live in dignity and have suitable shelter in a neighborhood that's safe with perhaps handicapped adapted, all accessible, all of those things. So if you're looking at let's just say it's a thousand dollars of SSI and the trust has seven hundred thousand dollars that's looking for a place to be spent in in effect, the rent could be paid, the condo could be purchased, whatever whatever housing arrangement would be made the the reduction in benefit of $333 is pretty insignificant compared to the quality of life that one can get by purchasing renting um, leasing property for for shelter All right and for for a lot of these families I'm sorry go ahead Dan no that's fine the 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 food issue is uh, that's a hard stop on food we all need to eat. It, it's hard. Yep. But it's that that's where that's where the SSI would would be uh, would be used by the beneficiary. And sometimes this this comes down to the size of the resources in the trust. You know, a family might not be that concerned with you know that one third reduction when they're saying, hey, like you mentioned, Dan, the quality of life is just so much better in a particular location. Uh, but I think a lot of this is that it's just making sure people can continue to get the Medicaid benefits because we all know healthcare costs are astronomical. They're probably not coming down anytime in our lifetimes. And and that can really eat into, into somebody's resources over time. So, so th- these aren't these types of situations where it's like rubber stamp boilerplate, like it is what it is. I mean, you guys are able to, to look at these things and, and work with the family to decide, Hey, these are the rules. These are how you, you maximize these benefits. But here's some times where it may make sense to not worry so much about every last dollar of government benefit. It's more about, is this individual happy? They're they living a good life. Absolutely. And to to that point, from a corporate trustee standpoint, there's a, a bit of a continuum, I guess, when it comes to there. The point being, there are situations where, for let's say a medical malpractice or an auto accident, 
there may be immediate significant healthcare expenses that are projected to continue the entire the entire length of the trust. There are other situations where there is a status where the, the individual may not require medical you know, health care expenses beyond other individuals. You see that with the on the autism spectrum. But the point being, when you are aware of the fact that you're going to have ongoing medical expenses, the special needs trust and vigilantly protecting those benefits is paramount. I mean, that's that's job one when you know you may have fifty to $100,000 of ongoing medicals year after year after year for the beneficiary's life. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really one of the, that's, that's the first thing you look at is what are we looking at here? And it directs all other decisions. Protecting that benefit is critical. Absolutely. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about everybody's favorite topic, which is taxes. How are, how are special needs trusts taxed? Their tax is a grant, what is called a grantor trust. So the income from the trust that's not distributed, beneficiary receives a tax letter saying this is this is the income from the trust. You will need to include it on your individual 1040 return. It's a grantor trust, which is good from a tax standpoint, because generally speaking, the individual's tax rate is going to be significantly lower than the trust tax rate. What about just shifting gears again here? Just thinking about you know, a lot of people have great intentions, right? You got, for example, you know, grandma and granddad say, that, "Hey, when when we pass away, we have some resources that we want to pass down to you know the the, the beneficiary of, of a trust like this." And this is where coordination can become very critical because I think sometimes people just say, "Well, I'm going to leave it to my granddaughter, for example," and that money is paid directly to that individual. So, how does this work if a beneficiary is inheriting money from a relative? And, and the, there's already a special needs trust set up. Like, like, how does the grandparent fund that trust or should they just give the money directly to the child? The easy answer is they don't give the money directly to the child. That, that would uh, disqualify the child for benefits until it's spent down. We get into some pretty technical rules here, but there's a, generally speaking, there's a 60 day spend down rule that gives folks time to deal with the inheritance, whether or not it can be added to the to the trust is uh, it's a legal question. I want to go down that road. The point being, there is there is a grace period where actions can be taken to protect the benefits, and it it doesn't necessarily have to be disclaimed. Uh, under more recent rules, it could be self settled into into a separate trust. It's not common, but not unheard of to have two special needs trusts: one created by grandma and grandpa grandpa's uh, bequest or the inheritance and one set up by mom and dad or or the reverse but that's that's a fairly intense legal question as to how that how that works out i've seen i've seen separate trusts set up sometimes additions but in no case would we want to create a bank account for the beneficiary that's one of those things where communication is key right yep. and sometimes people they just don't they don't want to talk about it or they just right. i think oversimplify things sometimes what's logical in our minds isn't exactly what's logical or, or right. the way the law works so i always encourage folks to just talk to the family members and, and see yeah. if they have any intentions of of passing money and if so let's yeah. the estate planning lawyer involved and let's make sure this is all coordinated in the extreme a, a ten thousand dollar and ten thousand dollar inheritance could disqualify someone from millions of dollars of benefits there are ways to 
they suspend the benefit and you get back on track. It's not it's not the end of the world, but it's it's certainly not it's certainly not an exercise folks would want to go through when it's easily avoided. Right. Especially I mean a lot of folks aren't even familiar with trusts anyway, or they don't really obviously we're not all lawyers trained in this stuff. You know, little mistakes with any trust can be catastrophic, but especially with something that's important and, and as sensitive as this. What happens later in life uh, regarding the government benefits when you know, the beneficiary gets older and maybe turns age sixty-five? What happens to the government government benefits at that point? At age sixty-five, and it stays at age sixty-five. It hasn't. They haven't gone into the increasing like retirement age. Sixty-five is the year. Then the beneficiary moves over to regular Social Security. The the special needs, put more simply, a person over 65 does not require a special needs trust. So that's the that's the magic age where you become you grow out of the supplemental needs trust requirements and become a Social Security recipient in the like everyone else. It doesn't matter what your resources are. It's not going to change your Social Security. It's, check. It, it just exactly. Excellent. So a lot of folks have heard about what's relatively new, which is the the 529 ABLE accounts. Does Capital First Trust work with ABLE accounts? And if so, how do they coordinate those with special needs trusts? We do, Jim. We are fairly innovative, I guess, and in, in, in liberal in terms of our approach to ABLE accounts. We permit, if that's, if that's the right word, and sometimes encourage funding an ABLE account from the, call it the main special needs trust to send 10 or $15,000 to seed the ABLE account. And the reason for that is what we find is family members, family members are very comfortable and they want to be involved and they want to bestow benefits and be working with the beneficiary. And those, those ABLE accounts are flexible. They follow the, the, they follow many of the rules under a 529 plan, ironically. They're very close in product similarity for rules and contributions, but it gives the beneficiary, it's a dignity issue. They don't have to go to the company like ours to ask for a $50 distribution or a subscription to a television streaming program. They can do that with their ABLE account. They can buy a computer and feel that you know, that's the, the families, the family working with them while the special needs trust them call it the main account is therefore larger and uh, more, or sometimes recurring like rent or the larger payment items. So it's, we do encourage it. And um, I know a lot of firms don't, it works out very well. And just a quick uh, highlight reel on, on what five to nine ABLE accounts are before we move on. Uh, you know, a lot of folks when they hear the, the whole five to nine acronym, they think of college savings plans and right. it's true. It came out of that, uh, that part of the tax code, but Traditionally, you can only have about two thousand bucks in your name before you start to become disqualified from some of these government benefits. Whereas with a five to nine able account, uh, this is for people with disabilities to have up to a hundred thousand dollars in their account without disqualifying them or have any effect on any of these needs based programs such as Medicaid or, or supplemental security income. So I, I agree with you, Dan. It's definitely a, a dignity thing, and you know if you can pay for these disabled, uh, I'm sorry, these pay for these disability related expenses. It is not to replace a special needs trust. I think some folks think, oh, if I have that, I don't need the trust. And everything, everyone's situation is different, but I think for a lot of folks, it's really, and I think having the five to nine ABLE account and the special needs trust gives you the the best of both worlds for many cases. Absolutely. And, you know, we encourage people, we encourage people to, to look into ABLE accounts. We encourage advisors that we work with to 
explain uh, how the able accounts works if someone someone uh, that was beamed onto earth from 20 years ago and they were told this is what you can do in a you can open an able account you can transfer money from the supplemental needs trust to the able and this is this is how it works they would probably uh, be very surprised all right let's talk a little bit about trust uh, administration because this is something where you know we worked with families that said, oh, yeah, we looked into a corporate trustee and we're kind of having a hard time finding somebody who, who wants to deal with a trust like this. So Dan, why are many corporate trustees becoming increasingly reluctant to service a special needs uh, trust account? I guess there's several answers to that question. It's all about separating the, I guess, the profitability or margin on special supplemental needs trust S&Ts. The large banks, I mean, I'll, I'll just cut to the chase. The large banks, the regionals, the Wells Fargo's, the Bank of America's, the truists of the world, they not only uh, shy away from special needs trust, they're having, they, they, most of their minimums now for anyone, even wealth customers is two to $5 million. Most of the supplemental needs trust that we see and administer at Capital First Many of them fall in the range of 300000 to a $1 million. It's the kind of the 80-20 rule. So number one, it's the lack of profitability that those firms see. Number two, it's the, in, it's not a scalable, it's not a scalable uh, service. Uh, phones ring, beneficiaries want an explanation. Sometimes it takes parents or other folks or caregivers get involved. So it's a very labor intense business from a trustee standpoint. Add to that the risk that you have of disqualifying someone's benefits by not having the right people involved, skilled trust officers. That's those are those are three big reasons why folks in the in the banking world and the fiduciary world uh, shy away from administering special needs trust. All right, because you might have a hundred different trusts that are completely different. Like not, not one of those trusts is the same in terms of what the beneficiary is going through, what their specific needs are. So I, I agree with you. You can't, you can't mass produce how you handle these things. You cannot. So, they're all, they're snowflakes as we call them. That's right. They're, they're that's all right. snowflakes. So sometimes people go, you know what? I, I could probably handle this myself. You know, it's um, I, I know my, uh, my son or daughter, or if mom and dad have passed away, maybe an aunt and uncle is, is stepping in to become the trustee. They go, but they're pretty savvy with money. They should be fine. But when you get into what it really takes to administer a trust like this, it's it's pretty complicated. So what are what are some of the services that are included when Capital First Trust administers a, a special needs trust? I mean, does each each trust have its own separate trust officer? And and what are some of the things that they handle for somebody? Jimmy, each each, each account has its own dedicated trust officer. That officer is supported by an administrative assistant. And the start of the relationship would be really the creation of a uh, a budget, or maybe it's nicer to say a spending plan to say, what are the needs? What are the, are we going to be paying periodic? What are the periodic bills we're going to be paying? Explain to the guardian or the beneficiary directly how to, how to request those payments. Most of the payments we would pay because of the, the, the documentation required rent, anything recurring, we would pay directly to the vendor. If there is a request for distributions, we, we, we make every attempt to pay to, to pay directly to the vendor as opposed to sending cash to the 
beneficiary. So do they they handle things like like tax filings and making sure that these distribution requests are in compliance with some of these regulations and make sure they don't qual- get disqualified from benefits? Absolutely correct. Sending sending cash to a beneficiary, although I mean that's I guess that ties back into our able account. Uh, but sending cash to a beneficiary where you can't document how it was spent. I mean, if you theoretically, we have seen trustees, other trust trustees, banks, and trust companies set up a six hundred dollars stipend to the beneficiary. That's that's a very dangerous. It's a very dangerous distribution because you have no way of knowing how the six hundred dollars was spent. It could have all been spent on groceries, and that directly could disqualify the, yeah, that, the benefits. That's a potential, yep. yes. So, how involved does the trust officer get in decisions like? buying a home or buying a car, or if, if the beneficiary wants to go on a vacation, how are they going to arrange that? Do they get into that level of detail or is it more of just for some of the, the bigger picture decisions? They're, they're involved in the, in the smallest matters all the way to the largest matter, which might be the purchase of a hundred, several hundred thousand dollar home, adaptive automobile. All of those decisions are, are through the trust officer. So um, let me cut you off there, Dan. Go ahead. Okay. So do they do they serve as the sole trustee for an account, or can they can you guys serve as a co trustee? Because I, I think that some families think about, you know, my take take for example, you know, the aunt and uncle are involved. Uh, maybe they're the the guardian uh, of the child, or they're also involved in in the day to day financial decisions, and they they don't want to replace them with a, a corporate trustee, can can they serve together? And if so, what would be the benefits of that? One doesn't want to say no to a question or to a to the aunt and uncle who say, can we be co-trustees? But we're we're pretty firm on the fact that, and, and it's, it's not a matter of it's better for capital first as a firm or it it's simply with a, with a special needs trust, having a co-trustee, number one, it when if you have shared trusteeship, then under the laws of it's they borrowed from partnership, the aunt and uncle could approve a distribution that shouldn't be made. So what we we encourage them to to allow us to be the sole trustee, and the safeguards around that are with the guardians to have a trust protector, have the ability to remove our firm. We certainly would tender our resignation if there was a serious decision that uh, upset folks. Uh, and, and and we felt that a, a new trustee was needed. But to answer your question, uh, it's a one area where a co-trustee is just doesn't work well. So it doesn't mean the family's cut out. It just means that Absolutely. they, from, from a, a legal standpoint, a fiduciary standpoint, they're probably better off being more involved in the in the day to day lives uh, in in plenty of other ways. Absolutely, uh, there are there are other roles to be filled. It's all a matter of degree. There are I mean, we have we have beneficiaries who call us on the phone, email us. They're perfectly capable of communicating their needs. I think for the audience, for the podcast, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to generalize what a special needs beneficiary may be. It can be, I mean, you can go from a person who's in a wheelchair, but think of Stephen Hawking, you know, can understand, may have a PhD, but have physical limitations, ongoing medicals. That's not unusual. Two Folks that require 24-hour care, their parents are guardians and have no way of expressing their desire for anything, and they have to communicate through uh, other people their needs. It's it's right. a such a huge, huge spectrum of beneficiary needs and circumstances that it's almost it's almost dangerous to talk about certain issues because it's just so broad. Right. 
Yes, you might have somebody beyond with, imagining. Beyond yeah. imagining. You might even have somebody with um, you know perfectly capable physical abilities. Exactly. And uh, might be able to you know, be very bright intellectually in a lot of areas, but just not have any capacity for handling finances. Absolutely. And there might be something where you know, we've heard situations where this is where financial abuse comes into play, where people get the sense that they, there's no there's no connection with with money. You, they'd literally give away everything in a heartbeat just because it just sounded like the right thing to do at the time. So this is where right. having a, a solid trustee in place can sniff out right. Right. You know, some areas where there might be yeah. you know, might be trouble. So. Does Capital First Trust replace the family attorney or the family's financial advisor, or do you guys work alongside these longstanding relationships? We do. Uh, I'll, I'll tackle the the financial advisor relationship first. As a South Dakota trustee, we work under uh, what they call the directed trustee role. Very large percentage of the assets managed in the special needs trust are managed by financial advisors. Specifically, our firm has a very limited investment management offering or ability capability. We have two small common funds that accommodate lower value, lower market value trusts where it's not practical or it's not practicable for an advisor to manage those assets. But beyond that, for accounts, and I'll, I'll just put a number out there, Accounts over $250,000 in value. The financial advisor plays a very important role. They have complete custody. The custody of the assets remains at the broker-dealer's custodian. We don't have possession of the assets. The attorney situation is a little different. What I'm, what we see, theoretically, if the attorney drafts a, a trust and it has clear direction it can be it's it would be highly unlikely we would we would need to resource that attorney for the tenure of the trust meaning we know what we're doing we know how to pay for a vacation we know how to pay an electric half the electric bill if there's a therapy tub i mean those are the those are the questions that an individual trustee a non-corporate um, might be running the attorney and saying our electric bills tripled since uh, the child came into the home or we adapted the home. What are we going to do here when the electric bill's gone through the roof? The attorney will, with all due respect to attorneys, it would be billable hours, and they would research the case and get back to the folks. And that could happen. We have seen that where three, four, five times a year, there's a legal fee. Question for attorney ABC firm and uh, that that's kind of distinction between an individual trustee and a corporate. The corporate is generally able to answer almost any question presented. I guess if you guys are handling this stuff on a, on a daily basis. Exactly. Like exactly. You've already been asked the question a hundred times. You already know what the answer is. But... Yeah. It's the difficult questions of how many we're going to Disney. How many we have three, the, our, our, our daughter has three siblings and we need to take a nurse. You know, how do you pay for that? We know how to do that. You know, we know what's reasonable. We know what will pass scrutiny from social security, all of those kinds of things. So Dan, this is, this is a huge topic and I'm, I'm thankful that you guys were able to come on the show and, and talk about such an important uh, subject matter. All right. So Dan, if somebody wants to dive in and learn a lot more about uh, some of these topics, uh, is there any resources you can point them to? Yes, Jim, folks can go to our website. We have a fairly robust website. It's at www.capitalfirsttrust.com. And as you click through the tabs, we have a number of 
resources listed there. Flip, you can you can click through, and we also have uh, videos and uh, I believe several podcasts. Some on sp- very specific very specific issues. We also have white paper, which is really variant. One of them is pr- fairly comprehensive. It literally talks about what's the day in the life of a trust officer, the beneficiary, their family, and capital first. It's good reading. I think it really conveys the, you know, what the experience might look like. So yeah, we have a lot of resources and it's, it all, it all starts at our website. Excellent. And just one, one quick plug to the website. Um, The document you guys put out, that's the administration guide for beneficiaries on special needs trusts, I I thought was absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's, it's a 32 page document that just when you think, oh, I could handle this myself, you get to about page four or five, you're like, you know what, might be better off making a phone call and uh, talking to somebody who does this day in and day out. So Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, really appreciate your your expertise and your wisdom. Eric, let me turn it back over to you. This has been fantastic. I mean, I mean, this really, really shows how important it is to have conversations right ahead of time before decisions are made. Families have great intentions, but Jim, you've talked about it before. Great intentions can lead to some pretty bad outcomes sometimes. So that's not what we want. We don't want bad outcomes. We want good outcomes. So I I love the theme of the entire podcast, and I hope people are listening. And I really hope they reach out and get some of those resources. So uh, both of you, thank you so much for the show. This is great. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number. 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119.
1-800-259-1503. Well, that's number 2023-159-250. Expires August of 2025.